you know, this whole conversation really only happened because of a video that went viral on Facebook and popped up on my feed. And it's of a man explaining the words his sergeant said to him to convince him to volunteer for a suicide mission in Vietnam, which would mean buying time for around 130 people to escape. But it also meant that five of them were most likely going to die. And that's only a small part of this man's life. But the message was so powerful that I sent the video to Meg, our producer, right away. And I said, just do whatever you can to get this guy. And so you may not know of him, but you should know of him. And I'm, I wish it was taught in schools because it's, it's really a part of civil rights. Is He is a huge reason why the world we live in today is much friendlier to people with disabilities than it was. And there's definitely a ways to go, but the world that he was living in at the time was a different planet. And I wish more people knew that and knew that um, none of this was just given for free, that people really had to work hard towards it. So his name's Richard Pimentel. I'm going to let him tell you his story, which is impressive literally from birth until now. There's a movie made about his life. It's called Music Within. You should watch it. You will write to me and you'll say, thanks for recommending the movie. I really loved it. Um, and the link to everything, the link to the viral video, the link to his movie, it's all in the show notes, as well as a way you can support this program if you want to help us keep going. So www.patreon.com hellohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hello human. If you get value out of this program, if you've been enjoying episodes, please put some value back in. Um, I would love to get us to around 1% of our listening audience to pitch in so everybody can enjoy it for free and we can do it without um, corporate sponsors. I would like to just avoid that if, I, if at all possible. So I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, I do want to say a couple of thanks. Thanks to his longtime business partner, Milt, who helped make this conversation possible, as well as a business in Idaho where um, Richard lives called Concilio. And the owner of this business put me up. <laughs> she gave me a room to stay in, and she also gave us the office to record in. And so that's amazing. It's really cool to get to interact with you guys. And the more you guys share your takeaway from the episodes, the more you guys share your favorite episodes, send us notes, the, the more we know that this program is um, worth continuing to sink time into. So thank you. You can find us on Instagram. It's probably my favorite way. Uh, hellohumans.co. And I'm Sam Lamont. And yeah, I hope, to, I hope to hear from you. It's really, you know, it's really actually nice to hear from you guys. So here we go. Richard Pimentel, everybody. Oh, and real quick, this the original conversation was around two hours long. That unedited version is on our Patreon, free to listen um, as well. But I worked really hard to edit this down. I literally made the spaces in between sentences shorter just to I, I have a feeling this is going to really at least profoundly impact one person. If that's you, let me know. I want to know how it impacted you. And so I wanted to just make it I wanted to increase the odds that more people would make it all the way through because I think this has the power to 
I don't know. I think somebody's going to really hear what they need to hear today. And I don't know who that somebody is, but I just had a feeling I had to make the episode as crisp as possible. And so, um, as usual, when the guest starts saying something interesting, generally before we even have chairs set up, I just press record. And so we're just going to jump right in. Richard Pimentel, everybody. The little talk that I gave on the meaning of of responsibility uh, was that responsibility isn't what you owe others. And it's not what you owe the government. And it's not what you owe society. It is your response to your own abilities in the situation you find yourself in. Your responsibility is ultimately to yourself. And I believe that people who are driven to do things because they have the ability to do them and they're responding to a situation uh, are the ones who uh, who I would trust uh, because I know what their motives are. They're not doing it begrudgingly or out of a sense of, oh, gee, I have to do this, uh, but because I can do this. Uh, I have the ability to do it. Therefore, I'm going to respond positively to doing it. And apparently that simple idea uh, struck a nerve with leadership trainers all over the country who've been talking about responsibility, but had never done that simple breakdown of the word before to say it's your response to your own abilities, not something you owe someone else or your employer or your society, or your community. It's what you owe you. And that I think that's what went viral, not me, this compelling idea. And it's what's driven me all my life anyway, is what are my abilities and what's the situation I see and what is my response to having those abilities? You just, you just do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's how I found you was that little five minute video, like I said, and uh, I was brought to tears the first time and I watched it two days ago. I was brought to tears. (laughs) I watched it this morning and I was brought to tears. There's something about it that really resonates with me. And I think it. Oh, well, well, I'm so glad. Thank you. I I understand that you're saying it's not me. It's this concept, which you initially kind of got from Sergeant Parker, right? Right. He, but it's it's the way you've adapted it and worked it in your own personal life that changed it for me. I inculcated it. Yeah, I I, I took it I, I took it to heart and said, well, this is a good way to live. So I've been trying to do that. So, I as a responsible host. Okay, what are we gonna do? <laughs> I, I have to say hi. <laughs> well, hello. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great to like meet you in person. This is so good. Likewise. And so I like to start off this way and I'll explain why in a minute, but this can be as big or as small of a question as you would like it to be. But Richard, who are you? I was uh, in a situation once where someone told me that I was putting together a legacy and I, I smiled and I, I said, no. I said, uh, we don't write our own legacies. I said, we, uh, my grandmother believed in me. Uh, my grandmother taught me. She took me in when no one would, would take me in. And uh, everything that I've, uh, I am is 
a result of the experiences I've had, but not the successes that I've had. It's a result of some of the trials, some of the failures that I've had. I believe that every difficult thing that's ever happened to me in my life gives me a, a, a key, a key to a door that I'm someday going to see, but I can't see it now. But I hold on to it. And sometimes the the worse the situation seems at the time, the more valuable the key. And as a child, I experienced uh, the accumulation of a lot of keys. Yeah. Uh, and and I didn't know what I was going to do with them. I just they were they were too heavy to carry. Uh, and then when life started unfolding for me with with chances to do something, I realized that every single thing that happened to me that I wasn't happy with gave me a key to unlock a door that I would never been able to unlock before. Let me let me explain something. Uh, when I was in the bunker and explosion in Vietnam, I thought that was the worst thing that could happen to me. I was a, a speaker, a high school speaker, a, a pretty good one, uh, won a lot of tournaments, wanted to become a professional speaker. Uh, suddenly my hearing is basically gone. Uh, and and I just thought, well, this is over. I came back from Vietnam with a traumatic brain injury. Uh, I'm not thinking like I used to think. I have to rewire. The brain will rewire uh, eventually. Uh, and I thought, well, this is terrible, terrible stuff. Then when I went to college, I met Art Honeyman. And Art Honeyman, uh, a very famous person in Portland, Oregon. He, he had cerebral palsy and he was a, he was a genius. I mean, a true genius. His, his IQ is like way over my cholesterol level. And, and no one understood him. His speech was unintelligible. And his arms flailed about his head, uh, his head bobbed. Uh, and one day, uh, it's, it's in the movie, I met him in the cafeteria. He was trying to get a Coca-Cola open, and he couldn't do it. He was dropping it all over everywhere. And I, I walked up to him and said, you, you appear to have a Coke problem, which is what passes as humor for me. And uh, let me help you. And I, I put this a straw in it, opened his Coke, put the straw in it, and gave it to him. And then he started to talk to me. I didn't want to talk to him. I really didn't. I wanted to get out of there. But he grabbed me. I don't know if he grabbed me. He had an involuntary movement. He had cerebral palsy. And, he, and I sat down just to be polite. And I could understand every word that he said. Every word that he said. No one in the school could understand this man. I understood him. Years later, I found out why. The explosion that I went through in Vietnam that destroyed most of my upper register hearing, but left some of my lower register hearing intact, was a opposite mirror of his speech pattern. The CP caused him to speak in such a way that anyone with average hearing would be so distracted by all the sounds that he was making that had nothing to do with his message that they couldn't discern what he was saying. All those sounds that were distracting to everyone else was above my speech range. I couldn't hear it. 
I could only hear what he was saying in a very limited lower register, which was all I had left. So being blown up in a bunker in Vietnam allowed me to make friends and talk to Art Honeyman and have him teach me uh, that I wasn't the only disabled person in the world and I should stop sitting, feeling sorry for myself and maybe we should go out and try and change things. Now, that's what I mean by key. You know what I am? I am the carrier of all of these keys. And what I am is someone who tries to learn lessons from failures, lessons from troubles. I had a, I wrote something once. It was very short. It simply said that a failure that you learn from is more valuable than a success that you fail to understand. Say that one more time. A failure that you learn from is more valuable than a success that you fail to understand. Mm. I think we have a lot of people who've had one success after another, and they don't have a clue why. Write down your, your four biggest failures, regrets. Now write down what you learned from them, okay? Write down your four biggest successes. Write down what you learned from them. See which one is longer. You will have learned so much more from the things that you went through that were difficult than you have learned from the things that you went through where they gave you the Cupid doll and the gold cup at the end of the race. So I'm a, what I am is a product of my failures, learning the lessons from them and trying to see how I do better next time. I was a horrible drug addict and hard drugs, meth, and you name it. And, uh, acted in ways that were horrible, had things happen to me that were just inhuman because that whole world is lacking a certain humanity that the drugs take from you. And in recovery, they tell you that all of those things that you did, that you experienced, uniquely qualify you to help someone else that feels all alone. And that's really your story to me, is that you took all the things that happened to you and they are your qualification to say, I can, I can help you through this because we've, I've been through it. And you have insight. My mother put me in an orphanage when, when I was just, uh, uh, an infant. Uh, she had lost a, a lot of babies. There was something, uh, wrong with the way uh, they were coming out and medicine wasn't that good at that time. So she thought that I had died at birth. She really did. Uh, cause all the others had died and she couldn't live with the reality of a crying baby that was supposed to be dead. <laughs> this was really tough on her. So she put me in an in, in orphanage and they didn't find me for years. Grandma finally came and got me. And uh, uh, they kind of believed not only the children shouldn't be seen, that they, 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 they shouldn't be heard either, you know. And uh, I just developed a sense of it's better not to talk. So I was nonverbal for a long time uh, in my life. Uh, I would talk at home, but I wouldn't speak in public. Uh, in school, I didn't uh, speak till I was, oh, 
seven, eight years old. So they put me in the classes uh, that were the the slow kids or what they called the retarded kids at that time. And back then, you know, we have special ed now, a whole different world than it was when I was young. But those classes were made up of two basically kinds, interesting kinds of people. One, kids who were really slow, developmentally delayed. And then kids that were just sort of on the perimeter. Some of them were geniuses, but couldn't adapt to anything. So everyone got mushed up if they weren't average into these classes. And what I got to see when I was a kid, all my friends were physically or intellectually or mentally disabled in one way or another. And I saw the way they were treated. I saw the way they were discounted. Even before you were? Even before I was disabled. This was my environment. I got to see that. These were my only friends. And then when I got into the disability movement after after Vietnam and looked at the way people with disabilities were treated, I looked at the way Art Honeyman was treated, and I thought, wow, that's just like when I was in the first grade. And I know how that works. And that insight gave me enough knowledge to go out and say, well, how do attitudes impact on this group? Not only attitudes that other people have towards them, but the attitudes that they have towards themselves. So all of these things have have set up situations and have given me abilities and insight. And I just had to tap into the, the third part of that, which is, what is my response to my abilities? Can I do something about it? And if I can do something about it, then I have to. As you talked about the keys that you picked up, so many of them had nothing to do with your choice. I mean, the part where, you know, your your mom, who's just tortured by these miscarriages, I mean, just totally tortured by it, gives you up for adoption because she can't handle the reality. And then on the other side of it, you being abandoned, mm-hmm. you know, and um, my heart breaks for for both of you guys, because I was a, a teen parent. I understand how extreme it can feel, you know, as a parent, overwhelming. And then on the other side, I, gr- I grew up with a single mom. So I understand that effect it can have, oh, yeah. you know, I feel on both sides of it. And there's so many opportunities of your story at so many different points to become. To become a victim. Yeah, but the effects, see, you can choose to wallow in it. You can choose to become a victim or you can choose to learn from it. Uh, Being rejected, being given up, that is devastating for everyone. But does it, but can you learn from it? What has this done? I am, I'm 70 years old now. And when I leave here, After this interview, I'll be going home to six children under 13. Four of those children are adopted. That goes back to my earliest years. So what could be a negative becomes an extraordinary positive if you choose to make it. Yeah. I'd love to start with 
try to get your teachers in semi chronological order. Okay. And I think the first major teacher was was your grandmother, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My my grandmother was uh uh she was disabled. She she uh, uh walked with a cane. Her her she had diabetes. Her legs were very swollen uh, all of the time. I remember as a child I used to wrap her legs in these ace bandages that soaked in this awful pink, smelly stuff. I, it was not one of my favorite things to do. But uh, she was a, a, a loving and a, and a good woman. Uh, and she, uh, she really believed in me. And uh, her child-raising days were mostly over. But uh, she took me in because there was no one else to do that. And she became the primary influence on me. Uh, and it was because she, she believed in me. I, I think I, uh, uh, I've characterized it as saying that she believed in me in spite of all the available evidence. She believed in me. And even when people told her that, uh, we had a teacher tell her that they should teach, they should teach me to make change for a dollar because the best job I would ever have in life is selling newspapers on the street corner. And I remember my grandmother saying to that teacher, little Richard will not be selling newspapers on the street corner. Someday, little Richard will have articles written about him in the newspaper. Uh, when I when I read the, the quote from uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, when he said, most people go to their graves with their music still inside them, there were there was a good chance I was going to my grave with my music still inside me. I didn't believe I had any, didn't believe if I did, maybe I couldn't play it. I was pretty sure no one would want to listen to it. Uh, but grandma believed. What Aldo and Holmes said, it was, it was fascinating. He said, the reason they go to their graves with their music still inside them isn't because they don't have music, but because they don't believe they have music. Therefore, they do not look for it, and they do not look to learn to play it. Uh, and for someone to believe in themselves, someone first must believe in them. No one should ever have to go to their grave with their music still inside them, which in my mind meant no one should ever have to live a life where no one believes in them. So maybe I can't make your path better, but I can believe in you. And ultimately, I, I tell this to whether it be doctors or lawyers or people who are you know in the helping professions professions rehabilitation i tell them that the most valuable thing you give the people that you're you're working with isn't your services isn't the food isn't the education isn't the programs the most valuable thing you give them is your belief in their worthiness for you to give them something i think it can be applied to everyone though Oh, you know, yeah, we, we can. I mean, most of it, it's so easy to get kind of stuck in programming where you just get cynical about humanity. Like you believe like, oh, this person screwed up my coffee order. How incompetent, you know, and, and like just about the little things, but also about big things, whether they believe different, you know, have different political beliefs than you. You get so cynical and there's a lack of belief in each other. I think that is really hurting us as a people because we so quickly like to have it us versus them 
us versus them. It's so easy to do that. Them, they're separate from us mm -hmm. and we don't believe in them. But it's a us problem. It's not a them problem because it is just us. Yeah. When you say when you say cynical, that really struck a chord with me because I uh, I wrote a, a piece I, I about a year ago I wrote and what I said was often we seem to be given the choice between being a cynic or a sucker and there are a lot of people out there that are deeply afraid to be a sucker and so the defense against being a sucker being taken advantage of is to become a cynic. I would rather be a sucker than a cynic. Uh, my my stepson, David, when he was young, he was about nine years old, we parked the car, went to a restaurant, The uh, another car pulled up as we were going in, and the person rolled down his window, and he said, I, we don't have any money. I got the wife. I got the kids here. We need gas to get home, and we're not doing very well. Could, I, could you give me something? And I, I reached in my pocket and I, I, I gave him $20. And he went on and I went into the restaurant with, with, with David. And he looked at me and he said, you know, he's probably out there doing that to everybody else who's coming into the restaurant. I said, might be. He said, he probably doesn't need the money. That's possible. Well, he says, you, all you're doing is just encouraging him to do that kind of thing. He says, what about him? made you give him that money. And I said, David, there's something really important that you need to understand. I didn't give him the money because of who he is. I gave him the money because of who we are. <laughs> that just hit me. <laughs> and, and, and he looked at me, and years later, he mirrored that back to me in a circumstance that made me very proud. So what I say is this. If you're going to be a sucker, you will be burnt once in a while. There's no question about it. You'll be taken advantage of once in a while. You will have harm done to you once in a while. But it's still better than being a cynic because if you become a cynic, you will do harm to everyone every day. I spent a lot of my years as a cynic. Uh, just not even had moments of being cynical, just living as a cynic. And um, it's an easy default for me, and it's so toxic. It's toxic for me first. It poisons my life first. Yeah. And then it poisons everyone around me. Everyone around you. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's it, we feel so attached to what we give. Like it still belongs to us. Mm -hmm. You know, like we, you give a, a dollar to someone, and you want to know if he's going to use it on drugs or booze <laughs> or not. I had, a, I had a woman who worked in a, uh, a food stamp program and we were talking and, and she said, well, some people come in and they really need them and that's real great. Some people, you wonder. She said, well, you know what I figured out? I said, what? What'd you figure out? She said, you can't always be the top stair on the staircase. You can't always be the step they take that gets them on the floor they need to be. Sometimes you're just the first stair on the staircase and all you're preparing for is the next step. And the first stair is as important as the last. Now, as the first stair, you never get to see where it ends either. You don't. You never. And so you have to let go yeah, of that. Sometimes you never know whether they make it up. You never know, but you just 
you still got it without the first stare. No one's making it up. It, it comes back to failures, too, where sometimes, you know, yeah, they're doing the wrong thing and it's not your job to necessarily prevent it from happening. You know, sometimes I know in my life I did so I did the wrong thing so many times. And had I not done it, I wouldn't be sober here with my son in my life today in front of you. Oh, good. That's great. You know, like those ended up taking a toll on my soul, all those bad decisions to the point where it was part of the desperate motivation to not live this way. You know, I mean, I know in the recovery community, you see that a lot where people took from the world a lot. And they end up giving back a lot more, I believe. Oh, I I agree. It's like the, the story in the in, in the in the in the supermarket when uh, when Grandma was getting getting food, and uh, the man behind her was screaming at her for getting free food, and wanting to know how you know she was ever going to pay society back for all that good food that that he was. Uh, you know, giving her as a taxpayer, as a taxpayer. Yeah. yeah. That he was giving her. And, uh, and then she, you know, and, and what she did is she, you know, I was there at the store and she, she, I was, she looked at me and she pointed to me and, and, and she said, you, you know, I will never be able to pay you back. See this young boy, he'll pay you back. He'll pay society back in, in ways that you can't imagine. And think about the people who uh, uh, that we begrudge help to. You know, I just had a thought that I've, I've, I've never actually connected the dot in this way before. But I, I worked for a venture capitalist at one point, and he was explaining how it works in really layman's terms because I'm not a finance guy. But basically, they raised the fund of $100 million, and that's to be invested in hundreds of different companies that okay. hopefully will pay the fund back and make a big profit. And in this particular round, they had invested in a couple hundred companies and all of them lost money except for one, which was a cancer research tool or device or some kind of breakthrough. And that paid back the whole fund. And that's what made the fund successful. Wow. And so I was just thinking about, you know, when you're, when you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to be helpful to, to humans who, who seem like they, uh, they're not quite as fortunate or could use a hand, it's just like the, the VC fund, you, you place your investments and not all of them pay back, you know, not all of them pan out. But one of them, like you, Richard, where the food stamps helped your grandmother feed you, you ended up paying the, the fund back, you know, for a lot of people for a lot of people. And I want to start where your story as a advocate for, for disabled people starts. And I think it's, it starts with Sergeant Parker on the Hill. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. Uh, I was in Vietnam in 1968 to 69. And, uh, Towards the end of the tour, we were only there for one year. Uh, then they would send you home. Towards the end of the tour, we were put on a, a hill. I was on a five-man uh, LERP team, a long-range recon patrol team and uh, for the 101st Airborne Division. And they were building a uh, radio relay station, uh, and they need to be on a hill uh, uh, for the signals, 
And it, the hill was pretty close to the DMV, which is right by the enemy territory. And we have radio operators, lots of them. We had builders who were going to build these bunkers and all of this. Uh, there was going to be about 100 uh, crack soldiers that were going to defend the hill. Our little team, our little five-man team was a specialty team. We were supposed to go down in what they called clover leaf, which is, you know, like one part of the clover one night and the other part of the clover the next night, down the hill to, uh, I believe they said, dissuade the enemy from coming up, uh, whatever that meant. Uh, and they they brought the first group of helicopters in. Uh, with the radio operators, uh, the equipment, food, maybe four or five days worth, water, three, four days worth, ammunition, what I thought were 23 minutes worth, uh, and, and our little five-man team, and some builders. Okay. Then the helicopters left to go get all the rest of the stuff, which have been lots of ammunition, the 100 cracked soldiers, the you know, all of the rest of the food, the rest of the, the water, the, the rest of the, uh, the ammunition, they never came back. Uh, a fog had gone over the hill and wouldn't move. And back then, you could do it today, the electronics, uh, the aviation is so much better, but the helicopters couldn't fly through that stuff. They'd run into the, the hills. They'd crash. In fact, we were told that there were helicopters who tried to uh, resupply us who had crashed, but they didn't tell us till later because they thought it would depress us so badly knowing that that had happened. And they were right. It would have depressed us badly. So we were there for two, three weeks, no food, no water. We, we had stretched tarps out because uh, of the fog. And we were actually licking the plastic tarp. That's how we got our water. <laughs> we were licking the plastic tarps. Not, not nice. Uh, and uh, you can go a long time without food if you do have water. And we were we got a, a message that that said that it looks like you're surrounded, uh, and they're probably going to come up and get you pretty quick. So we have a plan, and we thought, oh, good, you have a plan. What's the plan? They said, well, we're going to take artillery and take one portion of the hill that uh, you're in. And, and just artillery that for about a half hour, maybe an hour. Uh, then we're going to stop and everyone's going to run down where we've been blowing up the hill because the enemy will have left that area, which makes sense. And then we will meet you at a specific point, you know. And we thought, well, that's, that's not a great plan, but it's a plan. And they said, okay. And then they said, well, we have some bad news. I said, well, and I don't know how many people have been in the service, but when when the army tells you they have bad news, they're really not joking. It is is bad news. They said we need five of you to stay behind. We thought, why? Well, because when the artillery comes and then everyone's running down, the enemy will come up on the other side of the hill and flank everyone, and then pick them off at will. And we need people there that will confuse them uh, and delay them and do whatever's necessary to protect the ones that are escaping. And I thought, wow, 
Now I'm like 19 years old. And I said, well, well, who would that be? <laughs> and we were the only five-man team on the, on the hill, trust me. And, and Sergeant Parker was a great old, great old sergeant. He was a funny guy. Uh, he, he sits down and we had, we had time to decide. It was not like it was like they're going to happen in two minutes. We had like half a day to decide who's going to stay behind and everyone had to get ready to go. And he said, well, I think uh, I think we should go. We should uh, we should stay. We're the ones to do it. And I said, Why? And and he said, because it's our responsibility. And and I'm you know not like I was refusing, but I wanted clarification. Said, Why is it our responsibility? And he got angry, and he said, Pimentel, because in the army, no one ever calls anyone by their first name. Pimentel, he said, you don't even know the meaning of the word responsibility, do you? And you know what is it? He says, look. He says, the word responsibility is made up of two words. The word response and the word ability. And he says, now, we all have ability. Look at our team. We're a specialty team. We have ability. And we are confronted with a situation where these people are going to try and get off the hill, and they may not make it unless we do something. So the question becomes, what is our response? What is your response to this ability that you have? That would be your responsibility. I said, well, I thought responsibility was like to the government or to the army. He says, no. He says, responsibility isn't to the government. Responsibility isn't to the army. Responsibility isn't to society. Responsibility is a personal thing. It's a personal choice. And you have to ask yourself, do we have the ability to slow these people down to save the people on the hill? Do we? I said, yeah. Anyone else here can do that? No. Then what is our response? To this ability. I said, well, we got to do it. He said, see? He said, responsibility is what you decide to do, given the abilities that you have. And so we did it. And what, what he taught me was the real meaning of the word responsibility. And what's interesting is that I have gone to maybe 200 leadership classes in my life, because I I do leadership training, and I, uh, I I you know I sit through a lot of it before it's my turn to talk. I've never heard anyone talk about responsibility that way. It was amazing. Anyway, what happened is they 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 put artillery on the on the on the hill. Everyone goes down. We put all the ammunition that we have, and we had some TNT, which wasn't going to hurt anyone. It would make a big explosion and get their attention. And we were ready, and we slowed them up. We slowed them up enough that they got away. And then when it looked like we were going to be overrun, uh, we ran. <laughs> I imagine fast. Really fast. Really fast. We were good. We were good that good. And, and, and we, we got away. But we didn't get away in time to be picked up, so it took us days and days to get back to, uh, to the the uh, uh, the unit. And w- when we got back, there was a, a colonel there, 
and he was he was an amazing person. I don't know if you ever worked for anyone like this. Ever worked for someone you could do a hundred things perfectly and one thing wrong, and they would bring you into the office and talk about the one thing you did that was wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I know you work for that. Well, that's this colonel. And so the, so the colonel comes in. We thought they'd be overjoyed to see us, right? The colonel comes up. He says, pin and tail. He says, you can't even get a suicide mission correct. <laughs> I love it. So so that taught me. And it wasn't, I, I didn't think it was a very heroic thing because it was, everyone was doing what their job was. It was just, that was our job. That, that, that's what we could do. Uh, they set up the next thing that happened is he said as a reward you get to go into the beer bunker uh, mm. tonight and drink all the beer you want well that's a great deal when you're in the army and while we're in the bunker <laughs> someone dropped a rocket on the bunker uh and i ended up with a, a traumatic brain injury severe uh, hearing loss and later i find out when i come back uh agent orange that is affecting uh Oh, just about everything in your body that it can affect. It's pretty nasty stuff. But Sergeant Parker was the first one who really clarified to me the priorities of responsibility. And so what I always ask myself now, when I see a situation that needs to be taken care of, needs needs something done, what is my ability to positively affect? this situation, given my ability, then what is my response? Uh, There are people who say, well, I don't want the government telling me I got to give money to the poor, or I I don't want to be told I have to do this for these people or that for those people. No, I don't believe you should either. The question is, what do you think you should do, given the ability that you have? What should your response be? Uh, Many people in the disability movement went out and got arrested. I mean, a lot. Uh, Judy Human, someday you should look her up. She's one of the coolest people in the world. She was in California. She would like strap herself in her wheelchair to chain herself to buses because they didn't have a a, a lift. Justin Dart, who is like the, uh, some call the Martin Luther King of the disability movement, uh, uh, Justin was out uh, doing civil disobedience, getting arrested and, and, and doing that. Uh, I got arrested. That's probably another topic, but, uh, what my role was to be a spokesperson to design training, to change people's attitudes, to take the ability that I had, which is communication speech and try and change the attitudes of, uh, uh, not only society towards people with disabilities, but more importantly, to change people's with people with disabilities' attitudes about themselves. Uh, there's there's something that uh, happens when people uh, discount people. Uh, it's called internalized depression. And what happens is if people believe horrible things about you, soon you begin believing those things about yourself. And you're internalizing the oppression that is, 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 is coming to you. And people with disabilities were in that situation. So what we tried to do, and are still doing now, uh, working with young people with disabilities, we tell them, if you have a disability, there are two things going on with you. 
There's what you have, and there's who you are. In this world, who you are will always be more important than what you have. Work on who you are. Stop trying to work on what you have. I don't believe in coincidences, but it's a, it's interesting that the moment you're given this real life lesson about what responsibility and stepping up is, is forever locked in with the moment you lose your hearing. Yeah. They are one and one. It's not like this past experience that goes, oh, you like, imagine if you had lost your hearing just two years later. I doubt the first thing you would have thought of was Sergeant Parker telling you about responsibility. You, you know, but because they're interlocked at some point, they were one in the same. Well, I, I do believe in coincidences <laughs> in that I believe there are no coincidences. I, 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 I truly believe that it was a, uh, that it was a, it was a gift. Suddenly when, when I learned this from Parker about responsibility, now I end up with a disability able to listen to Art Honeyman, who's telling me, you know something, there's something you can do with this and we need help to change the world. And he did change the modern landscape and we're a part of it in, in a, a lot of ways. So you and Art are great friends in college, right? Art is the friend of yours with cerebral palsy who almost no one can understand. And it's a totally, uh, for young people my age, it's a completely different universe in terms of how, especially people uh, like Art who are visibly disabled and talk different and are treated. That's the problem. Yeah. There were only two rooms in that classroom from that whole school that were accessible to art. So the only courses he could take were the courses being taught in that room. Uh, the, there were no crosswalks from the dorm to where he was so he could get to the school. So every time he tried to get to the school, uh, cars would almost run him over and he, he would end up tipped on the street maybe two, sometimes three times uh, a week where maybe he wasn't hit, but he had to swerve and, 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 and that. So the government was not real interested in, in uh, giving him a higher education, just giving him a, a, a low-level education. But Art was a genius. In fact, when he died, uh, he was uh, officially the poet laureate of Portland. He and, and he had written all oh, half a dozen books, but people rejected him. Uh, his wheelchair was terrible. We had to carry his wheelchair up flights of stairs in his own dorm because it wasn't accessible. We had to physically carry him into his own room. Uh, if he had to use a restroom, we had to throw him over our shoulder and take him into to, to use it. Someone had to come in to get him dressed in the morning. I mean, basically, all of his friends took care of him and got him into school. We hadn't had the experience where I connected my disability to the larger picture of other people with disabilities. Uh, I just knew art, but I was somewhat oblivious to all the other stuff that was going on with disabilities around until, you know, one fateful night uh, uh, on Art's birthday. And then then everything changed forever. Let's talk about that night. Okay. Art's birthday. 
3 a.m. Art's birthday, 3 a.m. I get a call. I'm in the dorm. You say, well, how could Art call if he had cerebral palsy? Well, they had uh, like switchboard operators, and all Art would have to do is knock his phone over, and then the operator would come on, and Art would make what we called CP sounds, uh, which no no one could understand, but everyone knew what they were. So whenever those sounds came on the phone, the operator would send a call to my room. So I got all of Art's calls. I also got lots of calls from drunk people in the middle of the night, but that's another story. Art said, it's my birthday. I have $10. Pancakes. Art loved pancakes. And they're not easy for anyone to eat. And if you have cerebral palsy, they're really hard to eat. Uh, and I know what he wanted. He wanted me to come to his room, get him dressed take his wheelchair physically down these sets of stairs, push him down the park blocks to the pancake house, which was about six, seven blocks, up two more flights of stairs in the pancake house because uh, it wasn't accessible, put him at a table, order, cut his pancakes for him and feed him. That's what he wanted. And for that, he was going to buy me breakfast. Okay. Sounds like a good deal. So we, we went and did that. And we had done that before, by the way. Uh, when we got there, everything changed. We got into the restaurant and the waitress came. And uh, I was so shocked. Uh, she came up and she looked at Art. And she said, and this is hard to say, uh, though I've told the story I don't know how many times, but it may be hard for your listeners even to hear it, uh, especially if they're young enough that they're not used to hearing anyone talk badly. Oh, they can take it. People, Okay, they can take yeah. it. Good. The waitress came, looked at Art and said, you are the ugliest creature I've ever seen in my life. I do not even know if you are a human being. And she said, I can't believe you're coming to a place where people are going to eat. You're going to make us all sick. You want me to bring you food, and I don't know how you're going to eat it like some pig in a trough. I won't serve you. Get out. And then she said, I thought people like you were supposed to die at birth. I looked at art. And you know, Art, though people couldn't understand him, Art was sort of beloved at Portland State University. I never heard anyone talk to Art that way before. I, I thought, will this, will this be the thing that destroys him? Will the, the straw that breaks the camel's back? What, what am I, what am I seeing here? I looked at Art, and then he smiled. And here's what he said: He said, Richard, why do you think she's talking to you that way? <laughs> He says, you don't look any worse than you normally look. He says, I wanted to say this to you before, but you were my friend. And I said, she's not talking to me. She's talking to you. He said, how can you be sure? There's only two of us. This made her really angry. And then she said, you can either leave or I will call the police. And Art says, call him. Now, I got to translate for him. Call him. And she did, and the police came and said, if you don't leave, we're going to arrest you. 
I said, why should we have to leave? He says, he says because, you, you know, you're trespassing. I said, we're customers. The cop said, you haven't bought anything. I said, she won't sell us anything. And so that logic didn't work. Oh, finally, the cop says, here it is. Either uh, leave now or go to jail. And then Art says, I want to go to jail. And then he said, and Richard wants to go to jail <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, I don't want, I was raised poor. I was raised on welfare. I don't want to go to jail. I want, I, you couldn't get a job. In 1971, if you'd been arrested, you, uh, you couldn't get a job. Uh, I wanted to work for a big American company. And you couldn't work for a big American company if you'd been arrested. Now, now you go to work for a big American company and then you go to jail. But uh, the, the issue is that, that I could have left. I could have got up and said, well, I'm out of here. And they would have arrested Art. Art would never have said a word to me. He would have forgiven me. He would have understood completely. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what should I do? And then three things occurred to me, two of them highly intellectual and one uh, not, not intellectual at all. The first one was, if they didn't want me to commit civil disobedience, why did they require me to read Thoreau? Two, I didn't go to Vietnam to protect people that I don't know to come back and find that the people I care about have no rights. I wasn't happy that I was living in a disability apartheid nearly 10 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And the third one, and this is totally not intellectual, how the hell are they going to fingerprint art? What will it look like? And is it worth going to jail for? And I thought, absolutely. I got to see this. <laughs> I want to go to jail. And they put us in jail. And then they uh, found us guilty. Uh, and at that time, uh, Portland had what was called an ugly law. Now, the ugly laws originally weren't against people with disabilities. They were to stop beggars on the street, though many of they, the beggars were people with disabilities, but they were to control the beggars. So if you were disgusting and bothering people and uh, an otherwise an improper person, you shouldn't be on the street. As that tended to move, when the disability movement came, they started enforcing the ugly laws to include people with with disabilities. In fact, there's a a big paper that that Harvard wrote, uh, Harvard Law Journal has a thing on the ugly law that notes Art and I being arrested. Anyway, we're, we're found guilty uh, of breaking this ugly law. And there were about 20 or more ugly laws in the country at that time. No one who's crippled, maimed, deformed, or otherwise an unsightly or improper person shall be out upon the public thoroughfare. That burns into your brain. Uh, we were let let go. We get out of the, the court. Uh, Art's laughing. Uh, what's so funny, Honeyman? He says, well, they gave us breakfast there. They actually they gave us pancakes. So he said, we, I got my pancakes. I still got my $10. <laughs> Want to do it again? <laughs> I thought, well, why not? You know, like I'm not going to ever have a job. So we, we would find places that wouldn't service uh on the weekend and go there and make him arrest us. Art did it more than I, but, 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 uh, but I certainly did it. And knowing that I couldn't get a job, uh, 
I decided to hook in with art and change one little law in Portland that was wrong, uh, humiliate them and embarrass them till they rescinded it. Then we, I, I, then we realized that there were 20 of these laws, and then we realized that there was a whole national problem, and I ended up uh, never really getting that job, uh, but dedicating uh, all my time and effort to the civil rights movement for people with disabilities. But since I was a, I was really more of a corporate guy, uh, in that you know, employers would hire me to come and talk and stuff like that. Uh, I decided to talk about attitudes and design training, and uh, later I was asked to design a a uh, program called Windmills, which was attitudes towards people with disabilities in the workplace, training supervisors and managers on how to make more effective decisions about hiring and working with people with disabilities. And so that became a national, actually an international uh, training program. And uh, I helped develop job developing models for people with disabilities and Alleviating the fear for people applying and people hiring. Yes, yes. On well, both sides. On both sides. In fact, part of what I did was we trained people with disabilities to have them come together because the disability movement at one time was a very uh, disparate movement. Uh, you would think that everyone with a disability was one big happy family, but they weren't. When I first came into the field, the people using the wheelchairs were not real happy with people uh uh, who were blind, or maybe it was the other way, the people who were blind weren't happy with the people in wheelchairs because the people in wheelchairs wanted curb cuts and the people that were blind had canes and would go would go off the curb cuts and walk into traffic. They said, these wheelchair people are trying to kill us. So well, we, we needed to get them on one page. Uh, uh, there were a lot of specific groups dealing with one disability or another, but there was uh, a lot of the, the folks with the physical uh, impairments and the mobility impairments didn't see they had a lot in common with people with with uh, uh, intellectual disabilities or emotional disabilities and and so we they needed to come together as one big group before we could go to the government and say hey we need a law because we're one big group so as long as we're fighting with each other that wasn't going to work so my job was to soften up if I could use that word uh, educate employers not to fight against the ADA, and then also train people with disabilities to go out and train other people with disabilities on effective attitudes about other people with disabilities. Just because you've got a disability doesn't mean you have a good attitude about other people with disabilities. So, so the first training was that, and then we moved it to employers, and I've been working with uh, programs to help young people with disabilities uh, get into, uh, acclimate into society uh, uh, literally for the last 20 years, even pa way past the, the, uh, the ADA. Uh, and I got uh, exposure because I was a good speaker. Uh, and I started training the government to train the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, went through a lot of the the trials and 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 the tribulations of trying to get the ADA passed when when there were people who did not want it passed there were great dramas associated with uh, that could have blocked the ADA and eventually we uh, 
eventually we got it. And, you know, when it came time for what I thought was going to be the end of the race, you know, I ran my mile. I don't have to go any more laps. Now I find out that it really wasn't a mile that was just that mile I ran was how you get to the start of the marathon. The day the ADA was passed, I went over uh, to Evan's office. I was sitting in his office and there was a knock at the door and and the secretary said, we have all these reporters who want to come in and talk to you. He said, bring them in. And I, I got up to leave. He said, no, Richard, you stay, you stay. I said, okay. And one reporter, uh, I remember turned to Evan and said, well, now that the ADA has passed, people with disabilities are not going to have any more problems, are they? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I know. You laughed. I laughed. Evan laughed. And then he said something so incredibly insightful. Evan said, a lot of people think that the Americans with Disabilities Act is a trampoline and that people with disabilities are going to be able to bounce on that trampoline and go higher and higher and higher in business. He said, it's not. It's not a trampoline. It's a safety net. It's a place that you can't fall any lower than. This has been a, a, a wild ride, you know, and it's, it's not done now. Uh, what I'm working on now, I'm so proud of it. I worked for a whole year on this as a program for kids in special education on self-esteem and being able to be uh, pleasantly assertive about their needs uh, and train them to to feel better about themselves and to uh, let people know what, what their accommodation needs are. We have schools that do not tell them what their disability is. They develop educational accommodations for them, but they do not tell them what they're doing. Uh, these are called IEPs. Uh, and uh, probably every parent out there uh, knows some kid, if not your kid, that's been through an IEP for one reason or another. And they don't even know what's on their own IEP. When they graduate or exit special ed, if they want a job, they have to tell an employer, here's my disability. Here's how it's going to affect my ability to the job you want me to do. Here are the accommodations I'm going to need to be able to be the best employee that I can be for you. And let's get to work on this and I'll show you how it works. That's ideally what they should be doing. They don't know how because no one's ever taught them. They don't even teach them what their disability is. So I'm looking at myself, even though I'm 70, I'm really old. I'm already eight years past where I should have been dead being a veteran exposed to Agent Orange. We're supposed to live to about 62, right? Or as a good friend of mine in Vegas said, well, Pimentel, you're obviously playing on house money. And so we're developing a training now for young people with disabilities, all levels, on what a disability is, who, who they are, what their needs may be. And our goal is to train them in such a way that when they design their new IEPs, and if anyone's out there listening and has a kid with an IEP, I want to see the day when the child becomes part, not a recipient of their IEP, their educational plan, but a designer someone who also has input to their IEP so they understand what their disability is, what the accommodations are, 
and they'll be able to effectively use them. We also created programs for uh, parents, teaching parents about what what successful people with disabilities, what attitudes and ideas and strategies that they use, and another one on uh, bullying and trying to keep children with disabilities from being so uh, ruthlessly bullied in the in school. Kids with disabilities have uh, three to five times greater chance of being bullied than than others. And, and your chances are pretty good, even if you're not disabled. Oh yeah, even so, if you're not, yeah. And, just you magnify know, that. And, and and then with all these these smartphones, oh my gosh, you know the bullying has taken on a whole new char- a whole new characteristic. Follows you home. Yeah, social media is the most unsocial thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, but we haven't caught up to it yet. <laughs> well, I'm old. Yeah. I'm old. If I, if I have trouble with my smartphone, I give it to my eight-year-old to fix. But I mean, us as a society as a, you know, and absolutely. how we behave has not caught up to the abilities of social media and the internet. Absolutely. On the other hand, technology is going to help people with disabilities in ways that that we we, we had never ever thought of. There's uh, there's new technology that that where you can get glasses if you're uh, legally blind, you're blind, and you can look at something and there's a person on the other end who's looking at what you're looking at with a little camera and is telling you what you're looking at. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, to use uh, Sergeant Parker's definition of responsibility, which I think really was something you took on in your own life. What is your response to the situation given your ability to respond to that situation? I think it's it's amazing how you go from being taught that lesson, losing your hearing, along with tinnitus and the other stuff that went with it. What I just wanted to emphasize that, that it's not just that you lost your hearing, it's that there's pain and... Oh, yeah, the ringing. Yeah, the yeah ringing it's, and it's pain pretty severe, yeah. To... Ending up in a position where you start using your time to get your disabled veteran friends jobs and to end up being recognized by the government for your contributions to the ADA getting passed, to the equal employment opportunity um, getting passed. And it's just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing to sit in front of you and try and comprehend. I mean, I think we've been recording for two hours now. (laughs) And... You know, normally I feel like pretty wrapped up in an hour. It's just amazing all the keys, as you would say, you've collected and made use of. Uh, can, I, can I tell you one story about Art Honeyman that I think is is one of the more as meaningful to me as Sergeant Parker's story was? Yes. When when I wrote the windmills program, uh, it's uh, training for supervisors on hiring people with disabilities. It was a smash. I mean, corporations wanted it. And I wrote it for the California Governor's Committee on Employment of People with Disabilities. Okay. Uh, Cy Hubbard uh, was the uh, gentleman that, uh, uh, that was, that put that in. And there was a whole group of people <clears throat> who were involved in putting it together. Uh, my business partner now, Milt Wright, was 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 part of that. When it came time and it became a real book, uh, we had to figure out what to do with it. I know the California Governance Committee had part of it, but they said, "You know, Richard, you wrote this. 
So you own a good chunk of it. I said, well, what do you want to do? I'd never owned anything before. Poor all my life. But this, this is going to do a lot of good, I'm thinking. I said, if I gave it to you, what would you do with it? Just, I'll release all title. What would you do with it? And Cy Hubbard said, the first thing we'll do with it is we'll start a youth program teaching uh, young people with disabilities how to be successful. I said, yeah. He said, we want to start a fund and then fund uh, important things for people with disabilities. I said, okay. I said, well, let me think about that. And I I, I was in my room and I'm, I, I take out a piece of paper. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this. You ever did put a line, straight line down a piece of paper and put pro and then con? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And so I'm writing all the pros of, of just handing it away. And then the cons. So the pro is, it's going to do all this good. It's going to help all these people with disabilities. And the con was, I'll be poor for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know. And then the second one was, I'll be poor for the rest of my life. You know. And I'm writing this stuff down. And I'm, I am in the self-indulgent massacre that I'm doing to myself. An Art Honeyman comes in. Someone brings him into my room. He wheels his wheelchair up to me. And he says, what you doing? I said, well, you know, this program. He says, wonderful program. What you doing? Well, I can give, give it all to this group that's going to help people with disabilities, or I can keep some of it for myself and try to make some money. So I've got pros and cons. And he said, okay. He said, Richard, is it the right thing to do? Just because I see on the paper you don't have, you know, pro and you have con, but you don't have, is it right? You don't have that. Is it the right thing to do? I said, yeah, it is the right thing to do. He said, I could help you. I said, okay. He said, give me the paper. And I gave it to him, and he ripped it into pieces and dropped it in his lap. And he looked at me and he said, Richard, there are no cons for doing the right thing. There are only cons for doing nothing. Wow. That's heavy. And whenever I have been faced with such a decision again. That's making me really emotional. I know. Yeah. I remember what he said. I said, well. There you go. And it was the single best decision that Art Heyman ever helped me make other than going to jail. He helped me make the go to jail decision. <laughs> yeah. But is that, have you ever heard that? There are no cons for doing the right thing. No, I've never heard There's that. only cons for doing nothing. You know, if, if that's your lead horse, you're not going off the trail. Yeah. And, uh, Speaking of doing the right thing, and since I, I try to use your teachers in chronological order to get the story across, I think uh, the last teacher and one of my favorite teachers in your story is uh, your wife and your kids. Oh, and, yes. Oh, and, my gosh. Okay. Debbie, I met her when I was giving a workers' comp 
training in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And she was working for the, the comp uh, uh, people. I, uh, I saw her there and, and had lunch with her. And uh, I, uh, beautiful, beautiful woman. I never date anybody when I'm training. It's not, it's not professional. And it's, and if they think that I'm funny and charming on stage, I realize that it'll be a bitter disappointment to them later if they, if they, if they see me in real life. So I, I, I but I, I, I was just drawn to her and I said, will you have dinner with me? And, and she said, okay. She said, but I need to tell you something. And I thought, wow, could this be a Jerry Springer moment? You know, you, you try and avoid Jerry Springer moments. I said, well, what? And she said, I have five children. And I looked at her and I said, do you live in a shoe? <laughs> and she said, okay, that's the best answer anyone has ever given to me to that. To that, uh, I'll go out with you. And, and they, were, they, they were older and they were leaving. So we, uh, I lived in Vegas and she lived in Idaho and we saw each other for some years actually. And then, um, I decided to come to Idaho and, and, and marry. She had two of her kids just entering college at that time. And the, uh, everything was going really well. And we decided that, uh, we wanted, uh, uh, we, we want a child. And so we, we had a little girl, Cherise, marvelous little girl. And we're doing, we're doing really good. And then one day, uh, and, and, and Debbie is a, she's a music teacher in, in, in Boise. She does special ed and regular music and marvelous, marvelous teacher. One day I get a phone call and, and, uh, I said, hello. They said, is this Richard Pimentel? Said, yeah. Uh, we're with the child welfare people in uh, in uh, in uh, Nampa, Idaho. I said, okay. Uh, what can I do for you? They said, oh, we've just taken uh, four little sisters uh, out of a home that is not suitable for them. Meth, sort of a meth lab. And uh, one's just a, an infant, and uh, I think eight years old would be the other. And uh, they don't have any clothes. We had to burn their clothes, yeah, meth lab. And we got the clothes in garbage bags. And I'm thinking, well, why are they calling me? I'm not a foster family. I said, what do you need? Uh, we need to keep the children together. And we don't have a single foster family that can take them all. Would you be willing to take them? I said, well, why'd you call me? That we saw your movie. <laughs> You're going to give me, give me, you know, four kids because they made a movie of me. And I, I said, well, it's only be for a little bit. Uh, we'll probably find a home in two, three weeks. Would you take them? And we know your wife. Your wife's a, a teacher and uh, a special ed. Uh, you, you can handle it. Uh, they, these kids have been through a lot, a lot. I said, well, uh, I turned to my wife and I told her what the call was about. 
I and I, I said, well, how long do I have to decide? How long do we have to decide? And they said, five minutes. We're in a van in your driveway. <laughs> I love these people. <laughs> I said, what? I said, well, bring him in. And so they brought him in and uh, we had all these kids and they, and they, and they sw- I swear they had garbage bags full of clothes that they had bought at, you know, the store, but hadn't dressed them in yet because they had to throw the others away. So two weeks went by and uh, then another two, then a couple months and then a year. And they keep calling us saying, oh, we're still looking for a home. We're still looking. No one, no one feels like they can take all four because there's just going to be too much work to do, you know, given all the circumstances. And uh, so two years go by. And now the kids are in school and, 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 and daycare and doing well and, 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 and we're, you know, working on all the stuff and decide to have a, another child because now I have five girls and no boy and the balance of the universe is tipping the wrong way. And so I need, I need some, and since I'm losing all my testosterone, I needed some testosterone in the household. I'm getting old. Uh, so we had a little boy. And uh, they called me and said, good news. We found a place for them. Adoption. We're going to adopt them all out. I said, well, what kind of family? Tell me about the family. Well, it's not exactly a family. So what is it? Well, it's four families. We we couldn't find one family that would take all four. Too hard. So we found uh, two in Idaho, one in Washington, one in Oregon. I said, you're going to spread them out over three states? I said, they're sisters. And, well, can't do much about it. It's what we got. So we'll arrange to come and pick them up. And I said, uh, okay, let me let me get back to you. So I have the phone and told Debbie that uh, they're going to adopt them out to four different families. Debbie said, they're going to separate them? I said, yeah. She said, they are all they have. The sisters, that bond is all they have. And then us. I said, yeah. She said, what do you think? I said, I'm old. I have Asian orange. I don't walk very well. I said, I don't know what to do. And she looked at me, and I had been telling her the Sergeant Parker story for who knows how many years. And I don't know if you or your listeners have ever been with a partner, told them something very personal about yourself only to have it come back at you <laughs> in a less than opportune moment. I think pro- probably every human being in the world, right? So she looked at me and she said, Richard, do we have the ability to raise these little girls? And I thought, oh, how can you do this to me? I said, yes. Are we in a situation 
that calls for us to look to see what our ability to do this is? I said, yes. She said, well then, Richard, what is our response to our ability? I picked up the phone. I called them. I said, well, how long would it take if we decided to adopt them? They said, we can have the papers to you in about an hour. I said, have you been playing me? I said, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) I love these people. (laughs) And so we adopted them and we brought, we brought in all of our friends, a lot of our customers in for the, uh, for the, for the, uh, for the adoption uh, because of an interesting lesson. And I think the girls don't, don't know it, but one of the reasons they have a home is because of some old, grizzled, 101st Airborne sergeant sitting a wet-behind-the-ears kid down and telling him about the nature of the universe years ago. And uh, I believed every word that he, uh, that he told me, and I still do. And I would, I would say to you, and I would say to everyone, and I do it to the audience, what are your abilities? What are the situations that you find yourself in today? What then is your response to these abilities? That is our responsibility. And I mean, to talk about either being a cynic or a sucker, what a lucky sucker you are, <laughs> you know, that you got suckered into this situation. I'm oh. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would have, if I had been a cynic, uh, I don't know what I would have been, but I wouldn't have been a very happy person. And I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have been interviewing me. (laughs) (laughs) It was my favorite part of the story. That's the part where it really, you know, I was getting emotional. That's the part that broke the dam. You know, even just thinking about it now, I start getting there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. It's ins- it's inspiring. I mean, it, it's it's everything. Um, I like to end the show this way, and I always change the question a little bit. But Richard, if I was to put a phone in front of you and say, "When you pick up that phone, there's going to be someone on the other on, on the other end that is incredibly gifted and talented, and that the world needs, and they don't feel like it right now." And when you pick up that phone, they're going to be on the other end of it, and you can tell them a, a little message to keep them going. What would you say? I would say what I said to a a young woman years ago in in California at a youth group who came actually came and told me that no one no one believes in me. What I said is I told him I told her that most people go to their graves with their music still inside them. And they do it because they don't believe that they have music. I told her that I know you have music inside you. I know you can find it. I know you can learn to play it. And I know someday you will play that music and others will listen. And I promise you, when you do, call me. Wherever you are, I will come to hear your music. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you.
I, uh, I don't mean to sound conceited, but if you made it this far, you totally dig us. And if you dig us, there's a couple of ways you can really help us out. One is to become a patron at patreon.com slash hello human. You can write us a review on iTunes. That's I always love reading those. And you can find us on Instagram and share episodes. You can share your favorite episode on Instagram or Facebook or, or Twitter and just tag us. And that's a big help spreading the word because every new listener, one of them might be a patron who helps us keep going. That's it for this episode. My name is Sam Lamont. This is a production of Hello Humans. And this podcast is called How to Human, if you didn't realize that. And um, this is only possible with the help of my executive producer, Meg Schmidt, who's been helping with, I, I think, every episode from the start. Anyway, close enough. Um, yeah, it's late. I'm tired. I love you guys. And I'll see you next time.